Our grand plan is perpetual physician ownership. That's our grand plan. Everything we do is so that physicians can be in charge of the destiny of USACS. Uh, and I don't just mean one physician, and I don't just mean five physicians. I mean the thousands of physicians who own our practice. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and the co-founder of Ivy Clinicians. So we are excited today to have Dr. Amr Aldeen with us. Dr. Aldeen is the Chief Medical Officer of US Acute Care Solutions, has really been a, a leader in physician first, clinician first, emergency care for years now, started as an academic and, and now really is focused on the emergency medicine workforce. So we are privileged to have uh, have this conversation with Dr. Aldeen. So welcome. Thanks very much, uh, Leon. I really appreciate the time. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to emergency medicine leadership? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started in, in residency in emergency medicine at Northwestern. I'm, I'm originally from Virginia. I grew up in Northern Virginia and went to the UVA for undergrad and med school. Um, we don't need to talk about March Madness this year. We like to think about 2019 <laughs> only. So um, so I went to uh, UVA, I went to Northwestern uh, Medicine in Chicago for my emergency medicine residency. I got to train in emergency medicine, a great program, and I was lucky enough to stay there as faculty. So I was academic faculty for eight years uh, and uh, I, I did education of the residents. I was the associate program director. And then I got an opportunity to work on a national grant um, on geriatric emergency department innovations with two other sites, Mount Sinai in New York City and St. Joe's Regional Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey. And I was fortunate to be the third arm of that grant uh, on geriatric emergency medicine. It was, it was a great, great grant. I learned a ton. And uh, I realized with academia, one of the things that helped me to leave it in some ways was not because I hated it. I really did like it is because I realized that at the time, there were about 130 million visits in the ED uh, in United States emergency departments. And only 30 million of those roughly were seen at academic EDs. And so I thought to myself, the majority of emergency medicine is being practiced outside of the ivory towers of academia. And I really wanted to see what that was about and see if I could bring my skills to bear to that cohort, which was the majority. So I ended up leaving Northwestern, joining what was then called EMP as a chair and medical director. And EMP a year later became USACS through the mer merging of several uh, democratic physician-owned groups. And so I was lucky enough to be a medical director initially at USACS and the director of education. And when the call came for a CMO, I applied and was lucky enough to get it. So right place, right time. That's great. Let's stick with the geriatrics side for, for a second, because my sense is that in the house of emergency medicine, geriatrics really has been a leader. There's, there's a thriving um, accreditation program through, through ASEP. Um, there's tons of education. There's the GEM podcast, um, which my, my colleague uh, Christina Shenvi does. She's fantastic. Anyways, tell us a little bit about how geriatrics came to be on the forefront of emergency medicine. Uh, I, Leon, it's a great point. Uh, I, have, I myself have noticed the prolific uh, contributions of the geriatric-focused emergency department uh, faculty uh, in the space. I think it's just that uh, geriatricians tend to be very nice, <laughs> giving, positive people, <laughs> and 
geriatric emergency physicians are no exception. And so, you know, the people I got to work with, Mark Rosenberg, Yula Wong, yeah, I, I know uh, Christine Shenvey as well. Chris Carpenter is, is brilliant. Right. Uh, Maura Kennedy is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, there's so many great names uh, in this space. And uh, Kevin Bice is another one. So it, it's an honor to just be kind of in the same room as these folks. And, uh, and I think one thing that I bring is that sense of academia, but also would this fly in the community D? It's great that we're talking about this when we have academic resources, but does this work out in the community, out in a medium-sized city, or maybe even a smaller town or even rural area? And I think that part uh, I find really interesting to, to take those learnings and apply them. The implementation science is fascinating to me. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a sense of how that has translated into improved care over time? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I did with my geriatric focus at, at USACS was to bring about pain management guidelines. So we had, you know, Alto individual uh, departments that had pain management guidelines, but we have now almost 300 EDs and 500 total service lines, including hospital medicine and critical care. So pain management guidelines spread to that population of, of uh, EDs affecting 9 million patients a year has a pretty dramatic effect. So we've been able to reduce, for example, opioid use among both geriatric and non-geriatric patients uh, by about almost 50% over the course of two and a half years. And while we do that in an individual department, that's great, 50%, you're like, oh, that's, that's really nice. When you do that on, say, 4 million discharges a year, that has a whole other uh, uh, scale. So it's really, it's really neat to be able to bring that. Geriatric medication safety is something that I'm a big believer in. So ASEP is developing through the uh, Quality and Patient Safety Committee, a new metric on um, a quality measure on geriatric safety. And so we're already starting looking at that, the initial uh, sketch of that uh, of that uh, metric. We're already starting to look at our, our uh, you know, geriatric uh, high risk medication use. It's sort of like a modified beers criteria. So it's really neat to look at that over such a big scale. Yeah, I thought you know, there were two things that were really nice about the, the beers criteria. One is that it has a fantastic name. The other is that all medications met the beers criteria. Yes. And so whenever <laughs> an attending asked me if this medication met, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's probably, uh, we probably shouldn't give that to the to the elderly. It's like, great. Yeah, now what? absolutely. <laughs> Chances are it's on the beers list. That's right. right. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's part of the challenge of using the beers. This is, you can't use this, you can't use that, you can't use that. And practicing ear is like, well, what can I use? And I <laughs> right. think having that modification of the beers list for emergency medicine is, okay, don't use these five drugs, but you can use these three and we should be using these three. So sharing that information is important. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about your time at, at EMP. Can you tell us what, what that practice was like and, and what inspired you to, to go to EMP and become a, a medical director and an administrative leader? How long is your show, Leon? I think this is like soul searching for yeah. me. <laughs> no, it, you know, with academia, I, I really thought, uh, th there was something more out there. So that big step for me to leave academia was massive. I had plenty of people ask me, why are you leaving? You of all people. And I must say, I think it was a, a great step for me personally. I dove into something that I didn't know much about that I had preconceived notions about. And still, when I, when I talk to some academicians, I find they carry those same preconceived notions that I held. And until you get out into the community and practice, 
I'll give you an example. I, I joined the very busy community ED, the fourth busiest in the state of Illinois, in, in Joliet, Illinois, which is about 45 miles southwest, southwest of uh, Chicago. And, uh, you know, that place kicked my butt. It was high acuity. It was busy. It was, and I was used to having residents do stuff for me. And, and while I tried to see patients on my own, you know, primarily, it's not that easy in, a, in an active residency program. So it was a really big step for me, but it was something that I needed. I needed that for development. Um, I think I, I might use the word burnout a little bit, and I don't want to overuse that term, but I was probably starting to get a little crispy, maybe not totally burned, but <laughs> a little crispy towards the end of my academic life. And gosh, if, if there's one cure for burnout, it really is learning new things and, and developing. And the only way to learn new things is to put yourself in situations where you start almost at the bottom again and work your way up. And so while that was very, very scary, it was very necessary. And I, I credit that change for uh, keeping me excited and not worked out for the last, uh, what is it, six, six, seven years now. Yeah, that's a really good insight. So one of the reasons that I, that I bring up EMP is that EMP then became or uh, was, was a key part of becoming USACS. Can you tell us how that happened for those who haven't been part of kind of creating a, a bigger structure? What was that like? Yeah, it, it's very interesting because my soul searching moment came from leaving academia to go to EMP. To me, that was a huge step. Going from EMP to USACS to me personally was not a big deal. It was like, oh, okay, you mean I'm taking one much bigger group that I'm now part of and making it even bigger? Okay, no problem. I can do that. For the folks who are EMP for a, a decade or longer, two decades even, it was a huge step for them. They're like, what does this mean? What, what, what does that mean for me personally? I've been part of this group. I've been learning. I've been growing. But now we're joining an even bigger group. And then EMP was the largest or one of the two largest founding members of USACS. There were plenty of smaller democratic groups who I'm sure they felt like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be swallowed up by this big group or this big thing known as USACS. But what I found was very interesting. There were folks who obviously are change resistant. They didn't want to change. They were used to their small group. And then there are folks who embrace the change and they're like, you know what? This is a new day. Hospitals are consolidating. Payers mm -hmm. are consolidating. We might as well choose the manner of our consolidation and choose democratic groups to join to become a bigger group. And so that, I think, choice that the, especially the leaders of those groups made, um, I think was very far reaching and far thinking. And I think that has been a really big positive for all of us that you take a, a series of smaller democratic groups, you build scale also with physician leadership, physician ownership, and then you say, okay, well, now we're able to stand on somewhat, it's not, it's never even when it comes to the insurance companies, but at least better footing when it comes to insurance companies, hospitals consolidation, government payers, et cetera. So I think that uh, overall it was really, great step that we took. It was less impactful for me and less daunting for me than it was for others. But um, certainly it was it was a neat thing. And one of the things that's really great that I continually experience is the fact that medicine is practiced differently in different parts of the country mm -hmm. and even within the same part of the country at different groups. And so we're I'm able to see in my position the best practice of each group and say, well, I like this from here and I like that from there and I like to pick and choose. And then we can get together and talk about it. Got it. And one of the things that that comes up a lot, of, at least on the emergency medicine web, is 
the funding side of things. Yeah. And one of the things that that I really respected that USACS chose to do right from the beginning is maintain majority physician ownership. Can you, yeah. can you talk about that? Great question. So we did have private equity funding. Um, we did have private equity ownership when we first started. Uh, that ownership was uh, from a group called Welsh, Welsh Carson. Um, I'm going to tell you stuff about Welsh that's very surprising to some people who are going to hear this. But um, our, our group maintained 65%, so two-thirds roughly, um, anywhere from 60 to 65% ownership by the physician. So we were always in majority control. Welsh had a minority ownership. Now, let's talk about Welsh. Um, people may be surprised to hear this, especially people who hate private equity. Welsh was an awesome partner. They, they, yes, they're private equity. Yes, they're smart. Yes, they're financially well-trained and to some extent financially motivated. Not a single time in my career at USACS did a Welsh Carson person tell me how to practice medicine or how our doctors should practice medicine. And believe me, those of you who know me from Northwestern who might be listening to this, uh, know me as the cynical, jerky academic guy who's constantly <laughs> picking and on stuff. That's who I am. The moment anyone would have said something like that, I would have been like all over them. And not a single time to say that, quite the contrary. The folks I got to work with, a guy named Brian Regan, who quite possibly is the smartest person I've ever met, he was phenomenal. He would talk about, yeah. does this compromise the quality of care? Are we doing the right things for quality? Are we doing the right things for risk management? Are we doing the right things for our patients? It wasn't just lip service, it was real. And um, I was so impressed with them. I'm, I'm thrilled that they were our early private equity owner and partner. Um, I must say, I don't know that everyone, every private equity group is the same. <laughs> and so there's right. varieties. We may have gotten very lucky. I, in in retrospect, I think we did, and I think we worked with the best of the best in that in that regard. One thing that that you did early on um, with U.S. Acute Care Solutions is that you were part of CEME, the the Emergency Medicine Education Branch. Yeah, Can you tell us about that and what like why would USACS choose to to have CEME as part of its. Uh, uh, offerings. Yeah. So I got the opportunity to lead CME personally um, for, for a year or two. And, uh, uh, you know, having a, a CME accreditation arm is really good for all practicing community physicians, unlike academic physicians who can just go to conference and then they get get their CME and they're always around something stimulating academically at their institutions. Community emergency physicians don't always have that luxury. In fact, frequently don't have that luxury. And so uh, having an arm that can credit content and so that you can get CME credit for the education that we provide is great. Right. Not only that, as and, and CEME was originally owned by EMP, that EMP brought it into USACS. Uh, CEME now gets to benefit from all the experts from some of the other groups. So, you know, Maryland emergency physicians who joined a group, MEP, yeah. uh, they, ha they have a, uh, had a guy there's now my partner named Michael Chetta. And Mike Chetta did an awesome job doing observation medicine. Uh, and so we got to run the observation medicine course. And that was, you know, people like Mike Kronofsky and Chris Ball from, from Harvard, Mike Kronofsky from, uh, from uh, you know, the, the documentation world. So we're able to get the finest speakers to come join us uh, and give CME lectures for not just USACS folks, but, but everyone. So it, it made sense to have an accrediting body at the scale that we were. 
And why pay uh, outside entities, you know, money for CME when we could do it ourselves and we have such a great um, list of speakers and experts? Yeah, that makes sense. And you you got me through the board exam, so that's uh, so I owe you a little bit of something. <laughs> that's good. That's awesome. <laughs> a little bit of something there. We all need to get through the board exam, and I I still get nervous uh, studying for the board yeah. exams. Cool. So then you became uh, chief medical officer in in 2017. When you were when you were getting set up to to take that role, what were your priorities? What was your what was your vision? Where did you want to take the company? Yeah. So. As you can imagine, there was no playbook for that. It was nine different groups coming together. We suddenly went from a million or two visits a year to, at the time, four to five million visits. Uh, we, uh, biggest priorities were quality, risk, safety, but but engagement and integration. So, mm. yeah, you can imagine every one of those groups that joined had their quality person, and every one of the groups they had uh, that joined had their risk person. And so it was it was my task, along with the, the team that I was able to assemble, to pick the very best practices. And um, you know, I think you can appreciate this, Leon, um, and and note the sarcasm. It's pretty easy to get you know, 3000 physicians to agree on something, right? Like, right, good luck. Yeah. it's like, right, good exactly. Luck. It's the hardest thing in the world. You can't get three Not physicians. I know exactly. <laughs> three physicians at the same emergency <laughs> department, right? That's yeah. like the hardest thing. So what we did was we had open conversations about, hey, what is the best way to do things? Uh, the uh, EMP brought in, for example, the fail-safe tool. Fail-safe is, is mm. when, it, and it's activated by an app now, it used to be a phone call. When you have a high risk scenario, you call the fail safe physician who's on call 24 7, 365. A senior physician will call you back and we'll talk over the right. case. And so EMP had the fail safe, and you know, MEP, for example, or TBP, Tampa Bay Emergency Physicians, hadn't heard about that. Well, mm. you talk about it, you introduce it, and everyone's like, yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea. And then there are some that we introduce, and people are like, I don't really like that. And then we all talk about it, like, yeah, you're right. That's not going to work at our scale. Let's not do that one. And so you get the consensus going. And I think physicians, uh, while they do take a stand on things and like do it you know, our own way, at the end of the day, we're pragmatic. We'll, we'll figure out the best system and we'll use it. And as long as people can align on something, we can progress forward. So I think we're blessed uh, that, that we had nine groups that were really integrated and wanted to integrate. Uh, we had several groups join us afterwards. I think we're up to a total of, I think, what, 17, 22 groups, I think, that have joined. Mm -hmm. But every single group that joins has that open mindset of, all right, let's 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 do this differently. They've already self-selected, of course. They've joined something they don't know anything about. And so they're willing to accept change. And I think that's really important, the ability to, to I think I've heard the term, people say the term change agility. And I think uh, that that's what we do quite well. I believe it. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. 
Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. So uh, you might know this, but I've worked for two of the companies that that are now part of U.S. Acute Care Solutions. So I was oh, cool. at the old EMA, the red, the red EMA of, yes. of Mid Atlantic, okay. MEP's rival, but now they're in the That's same right. same uh, uh, same company and VEP Healthcare. Uh, the the California uh, yeah. company that's now also part of USACS. Can you talk a little bit about the the mechanism for that? So when USACS merges or buys VEP or or EMA or Altion, how does that work? Yeah, it, it's com- complex in some ways. Obviously, the leaders of those groups need to be on board. Um, it, depending on how many total owners of the group, they need to talk about it. So you have these conversations to say, do you want to do something different? We've talked to plenty of groups who are like, nope, nope, we're good as is. We're going to stay as is. We we don't want to join and get bigger. We don't want this. We don't think scale is necessary right now. I think they think at some point it probably will be, but not right now. So you have to have leaders and physicians who are engaged and want to change. And then after that, it becomes a discussion of, okay, well, when we do join, how does this work? Which sites do we keep? Which sites are we saying, hey, this this site is really hard to recruit to, for example, or this site, the hospital system is not a good partner with us. And then you have these kinds of discussions as well. So it is a complex, um, both clinical and business discussion. I think the nice thing is generally the big mergers we've had have been emergency medicine specialty, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly. And so we kind of understand each other clinically and operationally. Um, certainly the Altion group bought a fair amount of internal medicine through hospital medicine and critical care as well. But as we've been building those service lines, um, that was actually relatively uh, seamless as well. In VEP's case, it was physician owned to us as physician Mm -hmm. owned, and that was an easy merger. In Altion's case, um, we bought out private equity. So Altion was owned by a private equity firm, and we actually bought them out and gave uh, all the physicians ownership. So they had not previously owned the group, and now they do own part of USACS. And that quest to make it physician-owned is really key. When I mentioned Wells Carson earlier, you know, they were, they used to be an owner. Our physicians got together. We did well um, clinically. We did well financially, and we bought out the Welsh Carson ownership. So Welsh no longer owns uh, any of USACS. And um, so we bought that out, we bought them out, and then we bought out Altion as well, Altion's private equity owner to make it even more physician-owned. But it's been awesome working with the EMA folks, uh, you know, Drew White and Marty Brown, who I get to meet and work with a lot. Um, and then um, obviously the VEP folks as well, like uh, uh, Mark Fiernick and uh, Steve Marin and, and those guys. So it, it, it's been Steve Liu, and uh, there, there's a lot of great people. There's a lot of great people nationally uh, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to like interact with these very, very smart, very accomplished people. Um, yeah, you, you listed some of my, uh, my my favorite people as well. So can you talk a little bit about how the, the financial side of it works? So USACS is now almost 100% physician owned. Like, where does the money come from to buy out 
certain things like the private equity owners of, of Altion? Yeah, absolutely. We're 98% physician owned. The other 2% are owned by health systems. Uh, and so, and, and then we have uh, debt instruments, things like bonds and loans and things like that from a variety of sources. The bond market is, is what it is. You, we have a variety of different bondholders there. We have uh, a debt instrument with private equity. So they don't have uh, pure ownership, but they do have a debt instrument a, a little bit similar to, not the exact same, but a little bit similar to a bank, uh, having, having a mortgage with a bank, something like that. So we do borrow money from private equity, but uh, they don't have uh, strict ownership like in the way that our physicians do. That's how we, we fund it. The eventual goal is to become completely clear of, of that, but that takes time. And we did the first step of buying out private equity as owners. And now the next step, uh, hopefully, is is uh, going to buy out our debt. So it takes time. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to grow without uh, having some kind of funding mechanisms externally. Right. Um, just like it's very difficult to buy a house on pure cash. It's awesome that when people can do that, but not most people can't do that. So, so just two kind of big picture questions. What do you think? Since now USACS does have significant scale. What are the main benefits of scale and what are the main downsides of, of being at, at you know, a fairly big uh, provider? I think the benefits are, are pretty clear. The, the ability, ability to negotiate with payers for fair and appropriate reimbursement is one. The ability to provide scale for health system partners. So health systems have gotten really big and they want big scale. They want kind of narrow variability of practices. They want better quality. They want reduced risk. And so at our scale, with our resources, we're able to bring those things uh, to the health system. We're able to, and I, I use this, I don't want to use the word standardized practice. It's not like we practice the exact same way. It's that we narrow the variability so that there's not outliers there in our practice that, that commonly exist. So we're able to narrow that a little bit. And, uh, you know, I know physicians are always afraid of the term cookbook medicine or whatever. We like to use tools or your clinical judgment is your clinical judgment. The ability to use clinical tools to supplement that, I think, is important. And uh, in a manner similar to things like checklists and clinical coaching and things like that. Um, so those are really big benefits. Uh, I think the downsides are, are pretty clear as well. Uh, you know, when you have scale, you can't learn everyone's name. You don't know how exactly how everyone practices. I mean, I do my best to learn names and remember names, but at our scale, 3,500 uh, physicians, PAs, NPs, I don't know everyone's name. I haven't met everyone in person. And um, especially folks who are in very small groups who joined us, they may feel like, oh my God, I'm now in a huge sea, not just the pond. Uh, and so um, so that can be daunting. But you know, in some ways, there's, there's strength in those numbers too. You don't feel like you're alone. You don't feel like you're a lonely clinician out there dealing with all these macro forces. We are one of those macro forces and our force is physician. Our force, is, the whole point is to have emergency physicians, hospital medicine physicians, critical care physicians join together with, of course, our PA and uh, nurse practitioner colleagues and have a variable or, or variety of workforces and, and manage uh, clinical care. So my, my favorite lectures in, in residency were like the Mythbuster uh, yeah. lectures of like why, you know, TPA doesn't work. Like TPA doesn't work. It's amazing. <laughs> so, so let's do a little bit of, um, kind of social media myth busting uh, around USACS. Cause 
you know, just you know, there there has been some stuff thrown around EM docs and and uh, uh, Reddit and places like that. So I guess the first one is, does USACS really underpay clinicians? Great question. Uh, I don't think I've seen the stories of how what is it? Someone reported on how we paid a, a rate of twenty dollars an hour or something like that, and I was like, this is this is absurd, right? Like. Who, what physician in the right mind would take $20? Actually, what it is, is there's a floor rate and the physicians at the site choose to be paid that floor rate. And then they know that when they're productive, that the RVU uh, um, reimbursement comes in at often higher than what they would have with their original base rate. So our clinicians actually choose that uh, at, at many times to say, we're going to, we know we're going to be more productive than this rate. So the answer is no, we pay market-based rates and it's not just the floor rate you have to look at. You have to look at the RVU pay, you have to look at a quality-based adjustment, things like that. What's funny about this, and Leon, I think you'll appreciate this, is we've actually had discussions and this isn't just senior leadership. We open up this to town halls for every single one of our physician partners to say, hey, should we respond to everything we see on social media? Um, if When someone says something that's factually incorrect, should we just go in and say, oh, that's wrong, I'm sorry, that's, that's not a fact, that's fake news. And um, more than half, lately when we have those discussions, and we, we probably have like 200, 300 people on those calls, usually about 60% of the clinicians who weigh in with an opinion, they say, no, don't do this. You're just getting into the whole thing about the pig in the mud and all that. And then about 40% is like, yeah, then people think that we believe this stuff or we do this stuff. And they're just going to think that because there's no one speaking out against them. I must say my thinking on this has changed. I used to be a, a avoid pig mud kind of person. Uh, and now I've become much more of a, well, the people who are making these outrageous claims, they're false. The people who are affected by them are the silent observers, probably 90% of the people who are on the uh, threat. So the response that I write that's the truth is directed at those people because I'm probably not going to convince the person who believes one thing or another. I'm not sure that's a cognitive belief. I actually think it's a non, non-cognitive. I, I think it's an emotional belief because we're big, we must be bad. Um, I, you know, that's on them. I can't, I can't change their belief, but um, certainly I've been more willing myself to get engaged in, in uh, correcting factual inaccuracies. Yeah, social media is its own beast. That's, uh... Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about another story that's been out there, the Santa Clara contract that was with USACS, and now it's not. There have been multiple articles written about it. What's what's your sense of what actually happened there? Yeah, I think I'm losing a little bit in the internet, but what I heard was Santa Clara Valley talking about that contract. It was not renewed. Hey, uh, you know, there was an RFP put up. Uh, we applied to the RFP. Uh, I think several other groups applied as well. Uh, they went with uh, a local group that happens. That's part of this process. And that's part of what health systems and and uh, including government-owned uh, health systems have the ability to do. If we didn't provide uh, best service to the health system, uh, then we didn't provide it. And, you know, we did have trouble uh, staffing that location at times, uh, recruiting to that location. So, um, you know, that, that, that kind of thing happens, I wouldn't say frequently, but it does happen. One thing I will say is absolutely our goal is always patient care. Um, when you read some of those articles, the headlines differ from the text. Uh, you know, the, 
they, they reported at some point that there was a walkout of all physicians that never happened. There was like a few people outside the, the emergency department. Apparently they're there frequently and none of them, as to, to my knowledge, was an emergency physician. So those kinds of things get blown up. Obviously, we're a big group and it's easy to throw arrows at a, at a uh, toss arrows at a big group. But we never compromise patient care. I'm not that that's not really something that I would ever tolerate. So the, those kinds of things are uh, changeover of physician groups uh, definitely happens in this circumstance. Yeah. I think it actually at our scale, that changeover happens less, which is another good thing. Uh, I wish nothing but the best for the county. Um, they definitely feel like they made the right decision. And um, I wish I wish nothing but the best for the patients of that area because um, patient care is what this is all about anyways. Another myth buster. So is USACS's grand plan to replace physicians with PAs and nurse practitioners? <laughs> that's, that's one I've heard too. Actually, here's our grand plan. Our grand plan is perpetual physician ownership. That's our grand plan. Everything we do is so that physicians can be in charge of the destiny of USACS. Uh, and I don't just mean one physician and I don't just mean five physicians. I mean the thousands of physicians who own our practice. So that's the grand plan. As far as replacing uh, physicians with PAs and MPs, uh, absolutely not. In fact, we ourselves did the analysis um, published by Pines and company in uh, Annals of it was annals or academic, I think it was academic emergency medicine, a couple of years ago, looking at uh, physician assistant uh, and nurse practitioner quality safety experience relative to, um, uh, relative to physicians. And actually we found no major differences in cost. It actually doesn't save cost to go with, uh, to staff emergency departments with PAs and Ps. What I'll tell you what it does do, it's very difficult to recruit physicians these days. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. There are not enough physicians for the number of jobs. Now that problem is, it, that statement that I just made is probably not accurate in a very desirable urban environment, like say Austin, Texas, or Sh downtown Chicago, or downtown San Francisco, or something like that. But in most cases in the United States, especially rural areas, especially kind of suburban slash rural areas, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to find emergency physicians. And so, with not enough to go around, with the workforce report telling people, oh, there's going to be a surplus, which is not accurate, you know, having PAs and MPs provide uh, care is, is really important. Um, it also tracks some of the other specialties. Um, I, I don't mm -hmm. know when the last time was when you called the cardiologist, you actually got the cardiologist, right? You usually get the nurse <laughs> practitioner who's working with the cardiologist. That doesn't mean that you're taking the cardiologist job away. That means that the cardiologist needs to be in 10 different places all at once, and the nurse practitioner who's quite well-trained, is able to, you know, talk to the cardiologist, you know, triage the case, figure out if there's anything that, that's more complex. And then if there's more complex, they can kick it up. And so we, we have a similar, uh, similar mindset. Got it. So another one, uh, there was an article from, I think it was last year that said, who cares if the physicians own USACS, they're going to default on their debt anyways. <laughs> is is USACS going to default on their debt anyways? Gosh, I really hope not. No, I, I don't think so. As I mentioned before, um, you know, perpetual physician ownership. That's what our goal is. Uh, the goal is not to default on debt, obviously. The goal is to actually pay off our debt. We've been heading in the right direction to do that. We've already taken steps to buy out our private equity owner, and so we bought them out. So they're no longer owners. 
we're going to take continued steps to buy out um, the borrowing from private equity too. So I don't see that those kinds of things, I think those are people who are wishing poorly uh, uh, for us. I feel sad about that because that means that they want a big group of emergency physician owners of their practice to fail. Um, I've never thought that emergency physicians would want ill of other emergency physicians. I've, I've just never seen that. We're, all, we're pretty darn collegial. And so um, to have someone think that is sad for me personally, uh, but the answer is no, we're not going to default on our debt. We're going to stay owners of our company, uh, hopefully forever. So, um, so this one's a little bit of a, a bigger picture question. I guess we're, we're, we're out of the, the myth busting section. So okay. emergency medicine, as you might've noticed is, you know, facing some challenges. So the, yeah. the burnout rate's super high. We just had this, this match where 18% of, of positions were unfilled in the match. What's your sense of, of what's behind the increases in burnout and what can we do about it? Yeah. Great question, Leon. I, I think this, the answer to this would be a podcast in and of itself for several hours, right, with, right. Uh, people having various uh, opinions on it. I think it's, as with anything, it's multifactorial. Um, a huge part of it is operational difficulties in our emergency departments is the, you know, the boarding that's occurring. It makes our experience as emergency physicians not good because our entire job and training is how to efficiently take care of patients with high quality and rapidly. And so the quality piece stays uh, often, if not always. The rapidly part is what's being crushed right now with, with mm. a, for a variety of reasons. So that's one is operational difficulties. We're constantly at USACS trying to find ways, our experts in operational uh, efficiency are trying to find ways to help improve operations, reduce left without being seen, improve patient experience, uh, you know, maintain our SEP1 uh, <laughs> scores, maintain our ASEP48 uh, sepsis scores, make sure that we're not over providing antibiotics or, or, and, and having some degree of antimicrobial stewardship, not over ordering tests, but still not missing items. So we're all trying to do the quality pieces, the efficiency pieces we're working on as well. Um, but, but these are challenges that, you know, very big contribution of the nursing workforce and how that has changed and how that has limited the effective capacity of hospitals to take, to fill all their beds because they've been limited in terms of staffing. So these are forces that are beyond um, ours to completely control. We can influence them, but we can't control them. I think uh, burnout occurs when you think you can control more things than you can, mm. uh, or when the expectation of something is a certain way and your expectations are so off from the reality. That can be very, very disconcerting. In some ways, emergency medicine has always been at the leading edge or the, le the, the worst, whatever it is, of burnout. I mean, we're always up there in the top three specialties. So it's the magnitude of it that's gotten higher. It's, it's big. Another thing is um, a fair amount of burnout has to do with um, a lack of ability to see kind of hope on the horizon, like with the No Surprises Act and the way that the insurance companies have interpreted that, that has caused major difficulties uh, in reimbursements to physicians. Uh, and, and, and this is fair and appropriate reimbursement. This is the reimbursement we've been doing for years. And now apparently we can almost give interest-free loans to insurance companies while they, while they uh, arbitrate some of these items. So that is a big part of it too. The workforce report definitely scared medical students into thinking that emergency medicine was a bad job. It's still an awesome job. 
one, one thing that's amazing about emergency medicine is because the variety of skills you get and the understanding you have a, about operation and flow in the hospital, you become a really good candidate for hospital administration, like chief quality officer, mm. chief medical officer, et cetera. So emergency medicine tees you up for a variety of different careers in healthcare that I think um, lend themselves to our unique skill set. So it's an awesome career. I wish more people go into it. And actually, I think the way I'm seeing the, the trends, it looks like uh, US-based physician candidates might be going down, but uh, a lot of the international candidates are going up. And a lot of these candidates are actually, frankly, amazing um, candidates. They're great, great physicians. And they've been almost cut out from emergency medicine for a long time because of how competitive it was. And now the US-based candidates are going down. The international candidates are increasing. Um, and uh, you know, time will tell whether that's a good trend or a bad trend. I think overall, I'd love to see more US-based candidates go into the specialty, but the, the quality of candidates I don't see is, is uh, changing it immediately, at least. I believe it. And one thing that you mentioned earlier that I want to touch on is rural healthcare. So USACS has a large number of rural EDs that it manages. What's your vision for dealing with the challenges of rural healthcare, but really going beyond that and delivering great care in at rural sites? It's a great question, Leon. So, um, you know, as much as I like to say, I and my position can, uh, can deeply affect quality, risk, and safety at every single one of our sites. The fact is, I, I can only really do that with my team for a few specific diagnoses, conditions. I can't teach emergency medicine 101 to everyone and expect them to practice in a way that's textbook all the time. At the same time, our rural emergency colleagues uh, are among the most experienced and uh, uh, have the most diverse skill set of anyone. Uh, you know, they, right. they don't have the orthopedist at a whim coming down to see something or the ophthalmologist or the neurosurgeon. <laughs> they have to manage this stuff themselves. So it is a tough job. And um, I must say, you know, some of our finest physicians are in our rural areas because of what they're called on to do. I, my goal is to provide them with the tools and the support needed to manage the majority of things. And then um, really the biggest challenge, and this is for all of us to think about as emergency physicians is, how do we get more emergency physicians to go into rural areas? The workforce report, mm -hmm. one huge part that it missed out among a few other things, but a major part of it was, um, it didn't really address this idea of urban, suburban, rural, and the fact that we are still have an incredible deficit with uh, resident trained emergency medicine physicians in rural areas. And so um, as we look at residency programs and do we have too many, do we not have enough? I'll tell you, for one thing that's for sure, we do not have enough in rural areas. And as you know, of course, residents who train in a particular area tend to stay in that area. So it's, it's not too much to assume that rural emergency medicine residencies uh, will help increase the number of rural emergency medicine physicians. And I think we need to, we need to support that. Yeah, totally, totally agree. I've, I've worked in rural EDs for the last uh, five years and agree with everything you just said. Awesome. So just a few concluding questions. So um, is there someone at USACS that you'd like to highlight as a particular superstar in your organization? Your show is not long enough for that, Leon. <laughs> I get, I get <laughs> to one. work. I, just one. Oh, God. Uh, 
Oh man. And it can't the, be nobody in the C-suite, somebody who's, who's no, doing stuff yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that, that most of us wouldn't, don't know that, that they exist and uh, is doing really great stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I get to work with some of the finest emergency physicians, hospital medicine physicians, ICU physicians of, of all. So it's really hard for me to pick one person. I, I really think I would need to talk about a dozen people, but, but since your show is short and since we asked me for just yeah. one, I'd, I'd have to say, um, our national director of risk, um, it's a guy named John Bedoya. He is in Austin, Texas. Uh, he is, uh, at, uh, at the Dell uh, medical school and, uh, he's an emergency physician, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And, uh, he helps build and, and is the chief architect of our uh, clinical management tools. They are risk-based tools that are clinical decision instruments. And, um, you know, it, it is a, a distinct honor and pleasure to get to work with him on virtually a daily basis. And so he has contributed to the saving of many lives through catching, um, uh, high risk diagnoses like epidural abscess, like posterior stroke, like, uh, you know, mid, uh, you know, uh, atypical ACS, things like that. So if, if I could, if I could name just one person, uh, who I would say has saved the most lives, uh, and done the most good for USACS, um, I would say that would have to be John. That's great. A book or movie that you would recommend to our audience? A book or movie? I mean, if they haven't seen The Princess Bride, they got to see The Princess Bride. <laughs> good uh, answer. You know, that, that's the movie. I, you know, that, that's the one they have to watch. And if they don't get it, watch it 10 more times and then they'll get it. Love it. That was my first, my first date was to watch The Princess Bride. I'm that old. There you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and if, if folks are, are inspired by what you do or what you've said in this podcast, how, how can they reach you? Um, they can call my cell phone, 312-404-6576. Uh, text me. Uh, they can email me at aldine at usacs.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to happy to chat whenever. Well, Dr. Aldine, thanks for what you do. Thanks for being part of the Emergency Medicine Workforce podcast. And thank you for being a leader in a, in a physician-first organization. I appreciate you, Leon. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all of the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.